Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. I'm Nathaniel Mahold, a research associate here at ARK focused on automation and alternative energy. On today's episode, Brett Winton and I sit down with Peter Zihan to discuss the influence of geopolitics on innovation. Peter is a critically acclaimed author and a geopolitical analyst. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Brett Winton. I direct research at ARK Invest. Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. With us today, we have Nathaniel Mahawald, who is a research associate for us covering uh, batteries and robots and automation and all things kind of industrial automation. And we have, as a guest, Peter Zion. Uh, He's an author, geopolitical strategist. He spent his career studying the intersection of geopolitics and markets uh, and is a great read uh, and uh, has a forthcoming book. Peter, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. So you wrote, uh, now fill me in if, if I get this wrong, you wrote uh, The Unintentional Superpower and then... Accidental uh, Superpower. Accident, accidental Superpower, similar. Uh, Disunited Nations. And now you have a, a forthcoming book that's available for pre-order now. Can, can you tell us what the title of that one, which is provocative, please? Well, you missed number two, which was The Absence Superpower. But the new one is The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And whereas my first three books are all about the rise and fall of nations... This new one is about what the world looks like on the backside of the deglobalization wave we're going through right now. So what's the future of energy and finance and manufacturing and so on? Let's dig into it a little bit since, um, you know, I think some of your theses run very counter to our way of thinking about the world. And so I'd like to kind of highlight, I'd like to kind of investigate where, but I think there are some alignments as well. So could you just expand on both the thesis of that book, but also set us up where we are in history and relative to your other written work. What's led to this moment of there not being kind of a, a, a unipolar influence on the world? The two issues I deal with the most are deglobalization and depopulation. So first, deglobalization. We do not have a history of trade as a species until really 1945. We had a series of competing imperial systems before that that went after resources and labor and markets and everything, but they kept everything in-house. That ultimately generated the world wars and World War II. At the end of the war, the Americans proposed that they would use their navy so that everyone could go anywhere at any time and interface with any market, partner with any foreign country, participate in any supply chain, and the United States would open its market if in exchange, everyone would line up shoulder to shoulder. 
not behind us or with us, but in front of us to absorb any ammo that happened to come in from the Soviet Union. We purchased an alliance to fight the Cold War. That's globalization. It was always a security plan for the Americans, not an economic one. And so in the last seven elections since the Cold War ended, we've elected more and more isolationist and populist country or presidents. Uh, and Biden is the culmination of that. He is more populist and he is more or less of a globalist than even Trump was. This isn't an aberration. This is a trend. Second, depopulation. Normally you have a lot of babies and then fewer children, fewer teenagers, fewer young adults, fewer mature adults, and fewer retirees. Normally if you stack it all up, you get a pyramid. Well, when the United States allowed global trade, everyone could access all the capital and technologies and resources of the world. So the whole world started to industrialize at a breakneck pace. And when you industrialize, you move to town. And so on the farm, kids are free labor. In town, they're just really, really expensive pets. You do this for 75 years, and we now have a good chunk of the world, the advanced world, that has more people in their 60s than their 50s than their 40s than their 30s than their 10s and so on. Uh, and even in the developing world, that process is well past the no, point of no return because it happened even faster in places like Brazil or India. So we've always known that the 2020s were the decade when we have a demographic bust globally that is irreparable and irrecoverable. This was always coming. It's been coming ever since the Gen X was born because everywhere in the world, Gen Xers are smaller than the boomers. And in most of the world, the millennials are even smaller and so on. You add depopulation to deglobalization and the very future of trade period uh, has to change. The concept of global complex supply chains goes away. The idea of a single price for oil goes away. The idea that we can feed 8 billion people goes away. So the end of the world is just the beginning. It's about what's on the backside of this. And we are, <laughs> Trump sped things up a little bit. Biden sped them up more. COVID really did a number on it. And the Ukraine war is a hard stop. So the old era is already gone. It does seem like regardless of in the grand sweep of history, whether or not this was inevitable, I don't know, but it seems like the current events are certainly making this look quite prescient. And I should mention that in, uh, I think it's in uh, unintentional superpower or accidental superpower? Accidental. Accidental superpower. In accidental I love superpower. how you're doing this, so I have to say the name over and over so people remember it. This is yeah, no, no, you, 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 <laughs> you actually called that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and not just called it, but said, Hey, by by 2022, that's when they have to do it. And so kind of this scope of analysis does lead to, you know, called shots from eight years out that are that are amazingly prescient. And it it seems like within this historical moment, yes, globalization is at risk. Everybody's more sensitive to their supply chains because the supply chains are a total mess. And there seems to be more geopolitical friction, which naturally leads countries to think about, well, what am I what do I need to secure for my own both economic and strategic freedom uh, and, and in-house and in-country? So talk about what is that if we are at the end of deglobalization, what's your thesis for what that means kind of macroeconomically and technologically? The leading wave was always going to be one of two sectors, energy, because it's so sensitive to disruptions and demand is inelastic. And we're definitely we're on the leading edge of seeing that we haven't gotten there quite yet. 
I'm expecting the majority of Russian oil to just fall off the market within the next couple of months, and then we'll be there. And then the other one is manufacturing, because supply chains are so complicated and complex. Uh, and we're, we started seeing that three years ago, actually, with COVID and with the rising trade tensions with the Chinese. Uh, we now have the Chinese actively panicking about supply chains because they can't not do COVID lockdowns because their vaccine doesn't work. And they're now realize that they've had two American presidents back to back that are hyper populist. And everything that Trump said he was going to do, Biden is actually turning into policy. So that decoupling we've started musing about a few years ago is happening at light speeds now. And the companies that were unable or unwilling or just didn't believe it uh, during COVID uh, and refused to diversify or reshore things back to North America, they're, they're so screwed. Uh, because now we're at that point demographically where the baby boomers are retiring. And that's taking our biggest chunk of skilled labor with them. So we knew that labor costs had to go up when the baby boomers retired. Having to go through a reshoring process of this scale at the same time uh, was always going to be a heavy carry. But it's so much better here than everywhere else. Where does this take us? Well, for the United States, this broadly works out. The United States is a net exporter of oil, and while we will absolutely have to retool some of our refineries and the price balances we're used to for refined products is going to shift, we can get through this because we're going to be doing it in an environment of a saturated market. Uh, we don't use a lot of Russian crude. Uh, we never did. Uh, and refineries have been moving bit by bit in this direction for 15 years because of the shale revolution anyway to run on what is local. So we'll be okay there. We're the world's largest exporter of foodstuffs. We'll be okay there. And we're in the Western Hemisphere, which is largely, maybe immune's not the right word, but certainly heavily resistant and atypical compared to the Eastern Hemisphere in terms of population structures and trade patterns and resource access. So the United States will have some bumps on the way, but five years from now, we're going to be in a better place than we are now with a more stable supply chain system. Getting here, from here to there, It'll be awkward at times. Everybody else is so screwed, though. <laughs> uh, the primary source of income for East Asia is manufacturing. And a lot of that's going to go away because the East Asian countries don't have sufficient numbers of 20-somethings and 30-somethings and early 40-somethings, the people who consume, to buy what they produce. So when those supply chains relocate, there's nothing left. There's no oil. The agricultural options are very thin. The Chinese import 85% of their oil. 85% of that comes from the Persian Gulf, and the United States is no longer there to keep the lines open. They import 85% of the stuff that allows them to feed their population, so they're looking down famine. The story is different based on where you are, but this... 70-year period we've been in where it almost seems like hyper-growth and hyper-technological advancement, because it has been that way, that stops now. Tech development requires scads of young workers who are very bright, the ability to connect them all, and scads of capital to pay for the research, the operationalization, and the implementation. Once the baby boomers retire, the money goes away. And as deglobalization breaks, those connections among workforces goes away. So Silicon Valley will still be there, but it won't have the global network that it's used to. So everything is going to slow down. Let me pose a counter argument to that. It seems as if, um, so it, it seems like your core thesis is that 
there's basically like Pax Americana and from 80 on or from fall of Soviet Union, it's kind of like zombie Pax Americana where like the American military spending continued. And so we, we made like we unintentionally made sure that global trade was able to continue, even though there wasn't like the strategic rationale to do so. And so then, then your further argument is, and so like the American population cares less and less about that. And so it's voting for people who are going to strip it away because what, what do we care about this stuff? Really, there's not like some uh, aggressive presence that's going to stop us. And so then our allies also kind of stopped being as aligned with us because they didn't really need us to, to um, hold off the threat of the Soviets. And they were just getting this free good of like us making sure global exactly. trade. They got the so- goodies of the Cold War without paying the price. And, you know, it's hard to argue with that. It's like I would have done the same thing. Right. And I think another way to look at it, and, and they're probably both true to some extent, is that technology has made it so this stuff is less important to people as in like think about on the economic side i agree to create economic output you need a lot of connected people connected together but for people to be connected together you know you no longer need to be able to even like guarantee safe physical passage from one place to another i mean we're on this podcast right now i'm going to disagree with you completely on that point well, I mean, technology is at the top of the pyramid for a modern economy, you you know, foods at the bottom, then agriculture, then industrial materials. Then you get into things like manufacturing and finance. And if you don't have all of that, the tech doesn't happen. Tech is something that is added on top that does not function if you don't have energy or food or manufacturing. Well, but tech can change the sources of energy that you use. It can it can uh, make food production. Disagree. You know, what what do you mean disagree? You disagree that it changes the sources of energy that you can use? Absolutely changes the source. It absolutely absolutely does not. Okay, expand on that. Or, 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 okay, you're like, gonna have to tell me exactly what you mean because that sounds kind of silly to me. Well, so so you need energy as an input into your economy. Right. And uh, the sure. primary source of input has been uh, fossil fuels, liquid fuels for a long time. If there were a counterfactual history where, where nuclear develop, or power development wasn't totally derailed, then the entire energy mix feeding the economy would be transformationally different where, from where it is today. And even today, um, kind of like the degree to which mode of transport is dependent upon liquid oil is being uh, at the margin diminished by the rise of electric vehicles and so the margin yeah but it's okay i think i see where you're going with this using electricity for transport is basically what you're after here sure so our our nathaniel wait wait let me let nathaniel get a word in nathaniel why don't you talk about our expectation for electric vehicles and 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 we'll go from there well actually one of the questions i wanted to ask was we expect autonomous trucks um ev autonomous trucks to drop below the cost of rail when you have a road network, you know, that exists in a region for transporting goods and even drop Primarily thinking convoys here, right? I think so, yes. Uh, Autonomous convoys. I I mean, I don't have a time frame from that, but I certainly agree that that is the leading edge of EV tech in terms of application. I know you you talk a lot about um, kind of barge transport and the importance of waterways in your your books. And uh, I was just wondering, do you think that this will... Like, are any countries candidates for this altering their economies and the way that they function, having this cheap transportation? 
you're the expert when it comes to price points for convoys. From a technical and a legal point of view, I certainly agree that those are going to be the first ones. Cost competitive with rail, ooh, that's that's tough. I mean, your your average rail line can take six thousand containers, so to be able to replace that with trucks, I'm I'm going to call that a little squishy. I don't know one way or the other. If you imagine that it that it could happen, where would the change? you know, take place, I guess. Oh, the changes for that would happen in places that are relatively uh, not flat. Uh, you can't build rail lines uh, to transport large amounts of cargo uh, where the slope is any more than 1%. Uh, so the competitive advantage you'd be seeing for trucks are going to be in places that are already have to be truck-centric. I would expect the single the country where that could potentially benefit the most is going to be Mexico. All they will, I will underline that in that scenario, you're going to have some very interesting evolutions in the cartels. Uh, <laughs> in the United States, in the United States, not so much. Because either you're in California where the, tra- the traffic is too bad for convoys, or you're in the Midwest where rail and water works better. Um, I would expect, I mean, we're talking here about a transformation of distribution systems for, for this to happen. And I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm not saying that's not going to happen. But in the future, I see I see manufacturing going to be co-located with population centers with a lot more custom on-demand manufacturing. And in that sort of an environment, convoys don't make a lot of sense. So you're talking relatively long haul from point distribution to point sourcing. Hmm. Latin America could do really well with that. Let's actually unpack two, those two points first. So one, so just trust us on the map. EV autonomous trucks are going to be cost competitive with freight rail. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Automated trucks, I agree. EV automated trucks, I absolutely disagree. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> okay. Just we we understand. We understand oil. We know we have to deal with Iraq and Iran and Venezuela and Russia. It's a supply chain that's awkward and painful sometimes, but we understand it. If you want to move to EV, you have to replace the oil supply chain system with 13 more. And we have to deal with 60 countries instead of five. And if we lose access to any of them, the whole thing collapses. So in a deglobalized world, EVs in the way you're thinking cannot happen. I disagree because the the resource abundance of the feedstock for batteries is much more widespread than uh, fossil fuels, I think. Um, nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Let's go through the, the like, where in the battery do you see the pinch point on the raw materials? Um, hang on. Let me bring up something because I just read this part in the book yesterday. I mean, I, I, I guess from, from a broader perspective, just just like drilling in on the earlier point I was talking about, your your contention is that, well, technology is like a nice to have. It happens at the end of all these other things that you get. And, and you have it as like the cherry on top if you have food, if you have energy, if you have probably like security place to live. It's the top of the pyramid. Take EV autonomous trucks. Leave aside whether or not you disagree with us on the cost structure of EVs. But imagine a freight system that is able to be much more point-to-point and packetized for the exact same unit cost per ton. 
And so instead of having to load 6,000 shipping containers on a train, move it from one place to another, break it back down into intermodal onto trucks, redistribute it out, you actually have all of those containers each on an individual truck moving from place to place. Within that scenario, just let's stick to the U.S. for a second. Within that scenario, you could imagine the U.S. as a political entity breaking into lots of gif- different political entities because the, the, you don't need as much coordination to make sure you can have that train track running through. And it, it's like you don't need the security for this giant bulk shipment. You have everything packetized. Assume, no, 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 I, I hear what you're saying. And assuming that the numbers work out, I, I, I can't speak to that. I haven't seen your data on that. Uh, but assuming the numbers work out, we are talking about a different sort of manufacturing system that, again, has co-location between population centers and uh, where the manufacturing is actually done. In that scenario, you're talking about the number of ton freight miles being reduced by an excess of 95%. So I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I'm saying you can't use any of the data we have for our current distribution system to apply that mo- to that model because that model fundamentally obliviates the old system. Uh, do I think we're going in some version of that direction? Yeah. <laughs> my, my point is not that the... I, I think that there is, again, strong technological-driven reasons why manufacturing can co-locate now, whereas it couldn't before. Like you said, like you can, you can economically do um, kind of uh, just-in-time manufacturing. You can hold part inventory very inexpensively if you can 3D print the parts and you're just yeah, holding just in time's going away. Right, right. Instead, well, instead it's um, instead of like, hey, I'm relying on this thing to successfully ship from China by two days from now, because it's part number 500 of my 500 part thing that I'm going to plug in right at that time. Instead, I have like actually on site when I need it, I press the button, I get the thing off the line. Like that's clearly something that manufacturers are designing towards. I would say that we're having seen a quantum leap in the move in that direction right now. Right now, Hong Kong, Shenzhen and Shanghai are offline. We don't know when they're going to come back. And this is the new normal for China because they don't have a, a vaccine. So anyone who hasn't already moved their manufacturing is just absolutely getting beaten about the head and shoulders right now. So what you're seeing, what you're talking about there, that transition is happening right now. Right. And it makes conceptual sense, right? And if the, the ability to move things from place to place is also getting less expensive and also more flexible, then you could retain, think of it as like more of a mesh network of trade. Like you could continue to have things bouncing in and out of geographies um, just because it's very easy and fluid. And you don't need some giant global security apparatus to guarantee it because the, um, the now this is not something that we think is like technological, or we haven't underwritten this. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But imagine if you're taking ultra super high capacity freight boats and you're splitting them up into smaller boats, right? Then you actually need less security apparatus um, because the boats are, you know, if you lose a few, you lose a few containers rather than losing an entire um, uh, giant one at a time. Yeah, if, if okay, num- number one, small ships can't make cross-oceanic trips. They just don't have the range. Two, more importantly, uh, as soon as commercial vessels come under fire, the global maritime insurance industry cuts coverage for those areas and no one goes into those ports. We're seeing that in the Black Sea right now. 
So it, the scenario you're talking about is a renationalization or at least a regionalization of manufacturing. I agree, we're going that direction, but there's not going to be a lot of connections between the regions. So it seems like there's uh, threads that are kind of connecting here. One thing is we have this demographic decline, and the other is we have increased instability that will make global trade more difficult. Both of those things are going to play into the hands of anybody who can do 3D printing or um, make manufacturing, make it more easy to manufacture things close to where you are and, and you know, with resources that are close around you. So I guess there's an interesting con- a thing that is uh, produced by that, which is that technology is much easier to spread than you know resources. You can just send somebody the patent to something or the designs to something. It depends to on the something. technology, but I agree that a lot of things right now are fairly plug and play. But I guess what this all leads to in my mind is a situation where you are able to keep some of these countries that are on your essentially bad list, you know, uh, you know, countries that, you know, I, I mean, I've read your books, we, you know, we've talked about, you know, for example, China is one that I think you essentially have, you know, things to say about neg- negatively, geopolitically speaking, I guess, might be able to take advantage of some of that technology to change their fate. And I guess my question is, do you think that that's like conceivable or is that just right out for one reason or another? I think it's right out, but let me kind of give you some background as to why I'm thinking that. There have only been one, two, three three technological revolutions in human history that have actually changed the relationship of a society to its economy and a society to its geographic positioning. Sedentary agriculture, deep water navigation, and the Industrial Revolution. The digital revolution is real. It is changing many things about how we live and how we earn income, but it is dependent upon the industrial revolution. It is not a fundamental quantum leap beyond it. So if you break down the energy system of oil and electricity, there's nothing in the digital space that works. And I would argue that we're going to see a great deal of deindustrialization around the world in the next 20 years. By deindustrialization, can you, like... Help me understand what you mean by deindustrialization. You mean people are going to stop making things? Sure. We're in the early stages of seeing this in Ukraine, which is kind of unfair considering there's a war going on. But Ukraine gets all of its energy from Russia. And we're going to see four to five million barrels a day of Russian crude go offline later this year, which means there is not enough for global consumption to consider continue in its current form. Uh, even if I believed in EVs hugely, the technology isn't far enough along for it to be applied to the poorer locations of the world. So places that depend upon international trade to get the building blocks of modern society, oil, natural gas, copper, iron ore, and so on, we're entering a period of abject shortage as global trade links break down. So there are huge portions of the world, the country I am bar none most concerned about is China, that simply aren't going to have access to the materials that they need to continue in a modern industrialized lifestyle. And if you start to deindustrialize, cities are a death trap. And so you're going to see the cities in these areas to a degree empty so that people can go back to at least somewhere where they can eat. It seems like at, at a very like baseline, one of the ways we disagree is, is it's, I think you would agree with this. There's a, a, long-running trend of kind of technology generally allowing more product more product more productive output on on a fewer number of inputs 
in some way. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and kind of our view on the world is that, that you mentioned the industrial revolution or, or even you go back to the 1900s where you had the internal combustion engine and electrification and, and the telephone entering the economic marketplace at the same time. We think this is a similar and actually more pronounced moment of technological foment. And that the technologies entering the marketplace right now offer similarly revolutionary reductions and basically uh, required input for productive output. I hear you. It's, it's, this is not the first time I've heard that argument. I just think it's wrong. Okay, uh, but why? you got to think about I, I, why we've been able to do what we've done for the last 75 years. We've had a change in the macro-strategic environment, and that's allowed access from labor or energy or finance or tech from anywhere in the world to go anywhere else. The whole world has been a single system, and the economies of scale have been massive. That's now breaking down. Now, will the changes you're identifying not happen? Not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they can't be broad-based. And there will be countries, I think the U.S. is at the top of that list, that will be able to pursue these things. And that'll allow us to then have the argument about whether they're ready for prime time or not. Think about it this way. So um, one, one labor shortage that we have, and, it, and it's related to demographics, but it's also just education and training, is, is there's a, a dearth of software engineers in the world. There's a reason why... I, I got some good news for you. That's going away very soon. Oh, why? Uh, so baby boomers are leaving the market. That takes a lot of blue collar. That takes a lot of trucking and agriculture away. Uh, Gen Xers are a small generation with low labor participation rate. So that means labor inflation is locked in for at least the next decade. Uh, the millennials lost three to five years of expertise, either because they meet the negative stereotypes or because they entered the workforce just in time for the financial crisis and all got fired at the same time. Either way, they're the least skilled generation we've ever had. And that's where you're feeling the pressure in terms of software, because they're just not skilled enough for their age. But the next generation down, the Zoomers, they're antisocial. They were raised by Gen X. They were told that you had to be better than everyone else if you wanted to survive. Their dream job is to live in a closet coding. It's the only job they want. So I, at least I have some good news for you guys. <laughs> your, uh, your labor concerns in that specific spot are going to go away. But I didn't have a labor concern in that spot, but, but for different reasons than you. And, and you can, I mean, it, it is clear, you don't have to use, like you can try to work with the infotainment system of any car except a Tesla. And you can say, gosh, we need better software engineers. Like there, there are lots of examples out there. You can try to use like a buggy non-Zoom video conference software and be like, oh man, we need better software engineers. Uh, and, so bad. <laughs> and once a piece of software is developed, no matter where in the world it's developed, you can sell it anywhere, right? And so uh, an advance in software uh, is something that is transmissible anywhere in the world instantaneously. Regardless of whether or not it has electricity, uh, I agree. Well, okay, it has electricity. I'm operating on the good faith that that nation states are still going to be able to generate electricity. And um, with with advances in artificial intelligence, the reason we're uh, kind of bullish on software engineer supply, call it, is because kind of code completion software like what's released by OpenAI Codex is only going to get better. And so the productivity of the average software engineer is going to improve for effective, not zero input cost, but from an upfront cost of training that system. 
And I think that idea is broadly applicable in that you technological advance, particularly in the digital space, uh, you can send it anywhere in the world once it happens. And it's happening at, in a more and more meaningful way. Is that wrong? Or you just think that that's not like meaningful relative to these kind of big I think it's very meaningful in systems that can maintain a degree of coherence. I'm concerned that the building blocks that, of what allows that coherence themselves are being challenged, and that's going to shrink the pool of places where this is relevant. So I see not just rising inequality because of more automated systems, within countries, I see greater inequality between countries, between the countries that can pull this off and the ones that can't. Let me ask a quick question here. You know, we recognize the view that there's going to be increased geopolitical instability. One thing that, you know, at least in my life I've seen is these new technologies like Zoom, but also just like Facebook, you know, all these socially connected platforms allow lots of different places to be connected. And it creates a sense of connection between disparate places. We've gone all the way from like the Vietnam War being on TV to feeling very connected with people, what's going on in Hong Kong, you know, what's going on in Ukraine right now. And so I wonder what you think about the concept of, even though from the political perspective, we're having a fracturing, there's the potential that on the human level, you know, people... Uh, can't develop as much animosity towards others that they that they have these you know digitally enabled connections with, and there'll be less you know kind of conflict and instability. As For what it's that. worth, my heart is with you. I, I used to fully believe that, um, but then I've seen the way that uh, various systems have manipulated the digital space, and I've kind of lost a lot of confidence in that. So I can see some version of that becoming stronger and maybe strengthening, for example, the ties between the United States and Mexico, where there's no functional censorship. And maybe, maybe, maybe uh, that will include a few select uh, European, Asian, and especially South American countries. I can see a smaller world making that work. But are you guys familiar with what went down in the digital space in the, the Twitter revolution in Egypt? Yeah. Okay, so... Very short version. Uh, the Mubarak dynasty were a bunch of assholes. And so when the people rose up against it, the military stood back and made sure that all the digital avenues were open. And it resulted in the, Bar the Mubarak fall. Uh, two years later, the military was like, uh, we don't like what's replaced it. So they cut the cables linking Egypt to the rest of the world. There were only two. And they controlled the information space. Uh, and they were able to take over very easily. About a year after that, the Russians came to Egypt to find out how it was done. So then the Russians went and put digital kill switches on the four cables that go in and out of Russia. That's one of the reasons the information space in Russia is so tight and so ridiculous right now. Every authoritative system in the world has done some equivalent like that. And so the degree to which you can have honest, direct, open globalized, if you will, connections, uh, is a much smaller part of the world than you might think. And it is dependent upon governments feeling secure enough and cultures being secure enough in their identity to not limit the digital connections between them and everyone else. And that's another area where I think technology is changing things. Because look at, like, clearly Russia has tried to cut off kind of Ukraine's connectivity and Elon is shipping Starlink terminals in there. And, you know, there's 
nothing they can really do to stop it. And so uh, a lower orbit satellite constellation actually um, provides a mechanism by which to evade information control systems that previously didn't effectively exist. Well, the, the technology of the moment, the technology of the moment you have to have the receiver. So again, you have to have a system that is okay with that. So in the case of Ukraine, yeah, they're totally okay with it. And one of the most impressive technical feats I have seen in the last decade is the Europeans linking the Ukrainians up to their inf- their electricity grid in like a week and a half. That's normally like a five-year project. That was shockingly impressive uh, because they used to rely on the Russians for all of that. If that had not be in, been in place, Ukraine would be in the dark right now. But on the receiver point, you're saying that like the that you need a a, a downlink station on the ground um, within the country. Is that what you mean by the receiver? At a minimum, I mean the whole idea of Starlink is you have your little satellite dish. Right, right. And so, so what I'm saying is that if you look at, at Iran, right, which has banned satellite TV forever, you can see an apartment building that has all the satellite TV dishes on top, right? And those are much bigger than a Starlink receiver is. Uh, and so it, it certainly seems possible that um, kind of the great firewall in China, that, you know, the information controls in Russia will come under at least erosion from the fact that there's an alternative mechanism by which people can be connected. That's not really interrupted. Right, where this is audio, I have my fingers crossed. <laughs> I mean, and, and I think that there's a, there's, one of the really provocative vectors of technology right now is there are, are a set of technologies that I, I feel like are, are resilience in decentralized building. And so I'm going to lead us into cryptocurrency here in a moment, but Starlink is one of them. I think that if you think about kind of your concerns around the, the access to energy, if you are pairing battery systems with renewable energy potentially integrated with Bitcoin mining to, to make the economics work, then you can get much more um, kind of um, uh, resilient um, kind of energy systems that that aren't dependent upon kind of interconnects with other. Yeah, I don't think anything you said in the last thirty seconds is going to happen. Oh, okay. Start. Which one? Which one is least likely? Well, let, let's start with battery systems, green tech in general, and. Just to establish my bona fides here, I've got a solar system on my house. Uh, I believe in the climate change uh, data. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a skeptic on that. Uh, I'm a skeptic on the technologies that we seem to have all latched onto to fix it. So it, whether you're looking at um, wind or solar, whether you're looking at EVs or e-trucks, the materials that you need, you're talking in excess of an order of magnitude more in order to build the stuff compared to conventional tech. So for example, your conventional car has about two pounds of copper, maybe five or six pounds of nickel. Your average electric car needs, jeez, 130 of each? It needs all kinds of materials that we don't normally put into vehicles, and they have a global supply chain and global sourcing, most of which are in very uncomfortable places. So, you know, 60% of the cobalt comes from one place, and the second biggest source just went offline in Russia. Uh, So while we can't have inexpensive oil without the Russians, we absolutely cannot have the green transition without the Russians. Uh, And that plays for almost every piece of everything. In the Western Hemisphere, to a degree, this is less true because a lot of those raw materials are sourced here 
or maybe in Australia, I expect that to still work. But if you're in Eurasia or Africa, no, absolutely not. Well, so on the battery side, half of, I think that's, Nathaniel, correct me if I'm wrong, half of Tesla's sales in this last quarter were lithium iron phosphate. So uh, don't have- Those itty-bitty cars in China? Tesla doesn't sell itty bitty cars, so they they no they do in China. That that's the, that's the lithium iron battery. Yeah, well, okay, it's a Model Three though. It's not a different footprint. It's low low capacity, low passengers, low range. I'm not saying it's inappropriate for the market. It's very appropriate for the market. I'm just saying that that is not a battery that will translate without some significant changes into a broader transport overhaul. Well, actually, all their standard range vehicles, so not just China, are now lithium iron phosphate. So. The, the, the point is that like Tesla can do that because they have really, really efficient um, drivetrain and power electronics. Other, other manufacturers just aren't there yet. And so they can't deliver the range required to actually sell those vehicles in Western markets. I agree. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've been on a lot of calls recently with people from Tesla and that just does not feel right. What does not feel right? Sorry. That they can All sell in it. The, the idea that, that they're not using cobalt anymore outside of China, the idea that the, uh, the Tesla system has a better range than the competition. Yes. Well, that's, that's objectively true. You don't have to rely on us for that. You can adjust, adjust for the – I mean, obviously, you can, you can charge $100,000 for a vehicle and pump more kilowatt hours into it and deliver – higher range. But if you adjust for the cost of manufacture of the vehicle, they're three or four years ahead in terms of range per cost. But leave that aside. Don't you think that, that these technologies, so the, the fact that, that you have a solar system on your house, I have a solar system on my house, I have a solar system paired with a battery. Conceptually, I could overbuild that solar system such that um, it would provide me sufficient energy you know, disconnected from the grid for 99% of my needs. Um, that that provides people a mechanism by which to be essentially self-sovereign. And the same with, with If you Starlink. live in a place with good solar potential, if you've got a house battery system, then sure. And then I attach a Starlink terminal and I can be connected to the world. And then I pay for everything in Bitcoin. I don't even need a nation state to guarantee my money supply and I can participate <laughs> economically in the world aren't those all yeah like, sorry kind of bitcoin's like- a dumpster fire that's uh we're <laughs> i mean what you described with having a house with solar and a battery system that might work for about a tenth maybe maybe a tenth of the u.s population we're the first world country with the best solar profile but if you're not in a kind of a belt from central texas to um los angeles roughly you're not going to have enough solar intensity to be able to power a house. Uh, also remember that if you've got a, a six kilowatt solar system, which is about as big as you can put on most houses, it's going to take three days to charge your Tesla, assuming you're not using the power for anything else. I mean, just, uh, I think these are all interesting technologies. I just don't think we're there yet. This is another area that I kind of had wanted to touch on because I know I've seen the kind of renewable energy maps of, of, you know, and we're talking about self-sovereign individuals, but when we're thinking on a level of country to country, some countries are going to be able to power themselves, you know, given, you know, supply chain constraints, could conceivably power themselves on existing renewable technology. Some. Other countries in a post-globalized world, even 
you know, if they were able to get all the solar panels they wanted, or, you know, even activate all the geothermal resources they wanted, really their only option is nuclear. And some of them aren't even necessarily sophisticated enough to operate the complex nuclear, you know, infrastructure that they need. So I guess... That, 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 that might be a bigger list than you're thinking on nuclear. It is 1950s technology. We should improve it, obviously. But I... I I think that nuclear is going to be a bigger part of the future than a lot of people think because, believe it or not, its supply chain is simpler. Even with non-proliferation concerns, it's simpler than it is for solar panels. So then it leads to the question, do you think that each country has a renewable energy future with energy independence? I don't think so, no. With today's technology, you know, it might change. In time, well, it will change in time. Uh, with today's technology, we're talking Australia, the United States, Mexico, Britain, Denmark, assuming they can get their head out of their asses, Argentina, and Chile. Those are the only countries in the world that have a good enough green tech, solar, and wind profile to theoretically get more than half of their electricity uh, from a really robust build out, um, unless you, and that. I'm not counting the cheating that places like Denmark are currently doing, where they have a lot of wind towers, but they still source the majority of their power from the European grid. Uh, I'm talking about if you're doing a standalone national system. Those are the only ones. It doesn't mean that it <clears throat> can't help with the margins for other places, but our, our intensity, energy intensity and our, the energy density problems of solar and wind just haven't been surmounted yet in other locations where the, it's uh, less favorable. Some people basically call out Germany's policy to move away from coal and move more into natural gas as kind of, uh, wow, look at how environmental policy basically opened them up, opened Russia up and gave Russia an opportunity here um, to, 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 to affect us. Oh, it's, it's so much worse than you're, what you're suggesting. It's so much worse. <laughs> okay, so they didn't move away from coal. They didn't move away from coal. They're using more coal than they've ever used, and that was before the war. They now get uh, their single largest fuel source is lignite. Their number two source is coal. It, their, their big mistake was shutting down nuclear if your goal is to be carbon neutral. And I'm not saying that the Germans are stupid. They live in a very difficult neighborhood, and anything you can do in that neighborhood to make one neighbor hate you less is generally a good thing. And whenever the Germans and the Russians hate each other, things get very real very fast. Uh, so I understand why they did it. But I would hold out Germany as the shining example of how green tech doesn't work in most places. Because they've built out 100 and I think they're up to 155% in terms of generating capacity. 155% of their peak demand in generating capacity from wind for solar and wind and solar, but only generates about 7% of their actual electricity because Germany is neither sunny nor windy. But you, you would argue it's, it's not that green tech doesn't work. It's just like the mix between ambition to do green tech and the actual political implementation of that doesn't like green nuclear power is clearly green tech. It's just that the fact that it's politically unfavorable to some, you know, plurality of a lot of countries means that the, the policy implementation of, of, of green tech ambition, it just can totally um, strategically impaired oh, yeah, countries. Total, no doubt there. Politics is uniquely qualified at getting in the way. No problem there. Uh, but the problem is with green tech. So, you know, I live in high, the highlands of Colorado. I'm at 7,500 feet. My solar panels do great. If I were to take those same solar panels and put them in Ontario, they would generate 18% of the electricity that I get here. 
Right. There's there's no. I, I think we're in alignment that, or it's a house view. We've we've looked at from the beginning of the firm. We've looked at renewables uh, and cost declines in solar, and um, that solar power is interesting, um, but it's by no means a panacea. Uh, and it's it's wind's better um, than solar. Yeah, and also I think that you know the the biggest environmental mistake in in the last maybe ever was like the move away from nuclear power and not driving down a cost decline in nuclear power generation globally. Um, you know, from a climate perspective, disastrous. And from a cost of electricity I don't know if I'd put that at the top, but it definitely makes the top five. <laughs> but I want to I make sure we get into this cryptocurrency position you have, or Bitcoin specifically. Leave aside cryptocurrency. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Because it would seem to me that a perspective that the 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 U.S. is is not going to be driving the agenda globally. That that kind of trade is going to fracture sure. would suggest that a currency without a country would be better place. That um, if there's no longer you know if if China's trying to use the yuan as a reserve currency and Russia's trying to use I don't know gold or something. The and, Chinese uh, have given up on that, by the way. Well, have they? Because they they've introduced their central bank digital coin. Oh yeah, they totally did. So about I think it's three years ago, about three years ago, uh, you know, they wanted to get the yuan in the IMF basket and all that, and so they they started opening up their capital account, and a trillion dollars fled out of the country in less than six months. So they slammed it back down, and the yuan is actually now used less than it was three years ago. The, the things that you have to do to become a reserve currency in terms of opening up your financial system, the Chinese are not willing to consider. Well, maybe it's to become a reserve currency that like intersects with the the traditional you know dollar system, but instead they're trying to create their own kind of Chinese system. Is that a better way to think? They're about it? they're trying to certainly do that within China, yes, uh, but they're really not asking anyone to trade in the yuan because again, that required degree of openness in their financial system that they won't allow. But you think that Bitcoin is quote unquote a dumpster fire? Can you expand on? that point of view why wouldn't it work how, how much time do you want me to spend on this <laughs> okay so let me put the macroeconomic background for why bitcoin is happening now whenever capital is highly available and cheap and easy to source a lot of strange things happen so this is enron this is subprime right now the baby boomers are starting they're, they're moving into entire retirement in mass uh, whether it's later this year or early next year, at some point in the near future, the majority of baby boomers will be retired. As you age and approach retirement, your incomes generally increase, your amount of free capital increases, your amount of investment capital increases, because your kids are moving out and you're later in your career, so you're earning more money. Uh, that peaks the year before you retire. When you're scrabbling out there to get like every last 1% of return because this is your last chance for investment income because the day you retire, you liquidate all your stocks, all your bonds, you go into T-bills, you go into cash because you have no longer have income. So you have to go to a conservative. So the boomers right now are in the most liberal investment environment of their lives. They're the largest generation this world has ever had and they're all in that last year. So capital costs for the last couple of years are the lowest they've ever been. And in a couple of years, they're going to be very, very high because all that boomer liquid capital is going to go away. It'll be locked into T-bills and cash. Bitcoin is emerging in this environment when money is free. 
it's not going to be here in a couple of years. Uh, it's not a store of value. It's not a method of exchange. It is not readily shiftable into the real economy. We've discovered with the Russian sanctions that it is completely dependent upon the normal financial system for access. That means it's vulnerable to anything that a government might do. It's already been banned in 10 of the top 20 economies in the world. And in terms of productivity, oh my God, to generate it, you're talking about something that if we ever get a carbon tax has a negative value. So yes, there's nothing about Bitcoin that's here for the long haul. And if I think I, I think I disagree is, with you on, on almost every point. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. But if we're moving into a world where trade breaks down, what you need for a global trade currency is something that's large, something that's liquid, and something where the controlling body of the currency does not regularly manipulate it so it, it can be used with a degree of confidence. That's not Bitcoin. That's I agree with all those things, except for the large part. It needs to move large. It needs to be able to facilitate large flows, but it actually needs to be small. Because So, so I, I, I think that it's easy, certainly from the Western perspective, to believe that, oh, it's not a store of value. It's so volatile. And yeah, it's a bunch of boomers getting into Bitcoin and Dogecoin and all of these and I don't know, Shibu Inu coin and, 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 and anything and meme stock and, and stuff. And so it's actually just like funny money that people are playing around with. Um, but, but from the perspective of someone in Ukraine who is fleeing the country and they can't get money out of the ATM because the ATM is literally on fire and they get across the border and they have um, access to their private wallet and when they get across the border, they can then actually expend economic resource that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. It's clear that there's utility in that system. Why wouldn't you just use a normal currency for that scenario? If you can't access your, if your bank account is no, literally like you shut said, off, get across the border. Yes. Yes. They, they are fleeing Ukraine into Poland. Right. They're, they're, yeah, I know. If you're going into a system where there's a functional society, I don't see the utility. I mean, I, I agree. Moving money out of a place uh, is something that uh, Bitcoin is used for. That's one of the reasons why a lot of governments have banned it, because it's being used for smuggling. So you accept that, that it's useful to have a money that is robust to, for instance, an entire banking system getting shut down. Or, or the local currency I'm getting I'm saying inflated. that the scenarios where it is useful are not good enough for it to be used regularly in any sort of civilized system. What you basically just described is money laundering. No, 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 it's not money laundering. It's, it's a bearer asset. As in, if, if I bear an asset, if I have, right now, a dollar bill is a bearer asset. So if I cross a border with, I think it's less than $10,000, that's not money laundering. That's me moving with my bearer assets to another country. And by the way, my Twitter account is not a bearer asset because Twitter has control over it. But when I cross the border from one country into another, I still, at least until Twitter tells me to stop, can tweet. And those tweets are worth money. So like, it, you know, producing information is in some way the same as spending money. Uh, and, and this is a, this, this reminds me of a lot of things I remember hearing, um, well, not personally hearing, I'm not that old, but 
uh, among the really hard left in San Francisco in the 1970s. All we need is global peace and for the police and the military to go away, and then we can all do whatever we want and shift whatever we want. We're not in that world, and we're definitely not moving to it. it, it well, I think that the, the, the point is that you, you claim that it's been banned by, you know, what was it, 10 of the top 20 economies in the world. The fact is it's still being used in those places, despite the fact that it's been banned. The Bitcoin system is actually resilient and possibly strengthened by government attempts to shut it down. That's that's part of its value proposition. Uh, and I think yeah, that, I don't think we're going to see eye to eye on this one. <laughs> I agree. I, I've heard you speak about about Bitcoin before. I guess I had thought of a, of a way to structure this question really briefly, which was just saying, imagine that there is a currency that has a fixed supply. Imagine if there if the U.S. was going to say you know, we are going to have this other thing called the trawler or a non-dollar asset, call it a, I don't know, coin or whatever. They guarantee it, but somehow everybody can trust them. They know there is statistically guaranteed that there's a fixed supply. I guess with the world why, relying why on an asset. Why is fixed supply important to you? Because there's not going to be manipulation. It wouldn't have to be a fixed, instead, instead just a, a predictable and unchanged, as in, you know what the rules of the game are. Fair enough. Okay. How would this influence the geopolitical environment if, if every country could trust that this was kind of the reality? Well, I think you just described the dollar. Except no, because the, the foreign government, like a problem with the dollar for emerging markets is that, you know, the dollar supply is uh, controlled to the interests of the U.S. domestic economy. Uh, and often in a way that negatively impacts other dollar sensitive um, or other dollar dependent economies just because, you know, the, the Fed is not going to be like, oh, I'm worried about, you know, Joe emerging markets uh, economic prospects here. Right. And so they, it takes away that that kind of the variance that that's done to accommodate somebody that's, you know, totally outside of of the other country. I totally hear you. And that's definitely one of the criticisms of the dollar. The problem is we have yet to find anything better. And I would argue that that's never <laughs> going to be something like Bitcoin. <laughs> we, we actually have found something better. It's just you haven't, you haven't come to terms with it yet. Okay. Okay. We are. Yeah. We are I hear that a there. lot from people who really like Bitcoin. <laughs> you should read the white paper. Um, we are at the hour. And uh, Peter, I'd like to thank you so much for your patience with our pestering questions. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, and can, you, can you state the name of the book again? It's available for pre-order now. And you're a very engaging author and speaker, obviously. So please promote the book. Well, thank you. The book is The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Great title. I've already pre-ordered it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to hear yeah, that. I really like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Peter, thanks so much for coming on and, and look forward to talking to you in the future. It's a pleasure. Well, you should do this another year or so and, you know, connect on Bitcoin, see where it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's see. Right. Exciting. <laughs> All right. Thank you much. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.